Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 73, Ineffable Initiations and Golden Asses, Apuleius of Medaros and the Metamorphoses. Here at The Schwepp, we've been waiting for this episode for a long time. Apuleius is a central figure in Western esotericism, and a treatment of his work involves most of the things we love. Esoteric Middle Platonist philosophy will be present in abundance, but that's not all. We shall also have magic, witchcraft, necromancy, initiations, ideas of the ineffable, and best of all, we get to introduce fiction to our podcast in the form of Apuleius's Metamorphoses, our only classical Latin novel which survives in its full form, which is also probably our first occult novel, if we want to take that term in a kind of loose sense. And so we're going to be looking at fiction as a potent force in shaping real-life esoteric thought, which is definitely something that the metamorphoses became. So let's begin with the man and move on to the novel. In the next episode, we shall treat Apuleius's philosophy in more detail and discuss the Apologia, the published defense speech from his trial on charges of sorcery. So we'll have a lot more magic and stuff like that next time. Apuleius was born sometime around 124 CE, died sometime around 170, and yes, he was a sophist of the second sophistic. We've been seeing a lot of those recently on the podcast, but he's an interesting sophist in that he worked primarily in Latin, not Greek. Actually, it's more interesting than that. Apuleius was from Madauros in Africa Proconsularis, or Madaroch in modern-day Algeria, if I'm saying that right, and did not grow up speaking Latin or Greek, but probably the local Punic language. This was Phoenician, or the local dialect of Phoenician. We can't go into the whole history here, but these Phoenician speakers in West Africa were the population that Rome had fought in the famous Punic Wars. So they had been a major power player in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE in the region, but were now a subject population well assimilated within the Roman Empire since the third and final Punic War ended in the year 203. We know that Apuleius was from a pretty upper-class background. His dad was the local Duumvir, one of sort of the two top local magistrates, and he and his brother inherited a goodly sum when his father died. He was educated at Carthage, and then later traveled to Athens in the 150s for the usual philosophical and rhetorical higher education. He studied, in his own words, poetry, geometry, music, dialectic, and general philosophy there. And he also visited Italy, Asia Minor, and Alexandria in Egypt, the usual grand tour for an up-and-coming sophist. At Athens, it's possible that he studied under Sextus, the nephew of Plutarch, who appears in the Metamorphoses as a relative of the protagonist Lucius. But this is an educated guess. We'll come back to the fact that Lots of details of the metamorphoses seem to be autobiographical or quasi-autobiographical, but it's very difficult to pin anything down. In this period, he tells us, he was at pains to acquire the Latin language as well as the standard Greek, presumably because being from the west of the empire, Greek was less useful than Latin once he went home, and maybe he also had set his sights on a career at Rome. We don't actually know. We do know that Apuleius was initiated into several mystery cults in the course of his wanderings, including at Athens, and as we shall see, initiation is a major theme in his work. Back home in the 160s, he was 
pretty clearly a prominent man, and he was elected to the provincial priesthood, perhaps the priesthood of Asclepius, though we don't know for sure, a god he was quite into, although not as into him as our friend Aelius Aristides. This is actually more or less all we really know about Apuleius's life, and even that is filling in the blanks a little bit with educated guesses. Our only direct sources for him are his own works. Much of the information given above is called from the Florida, a collection of excerpts from speeches he made, and from Augustine, aka Saint Augustine, the church father, who seems to have read a lot of Apuleius, including the Metamorphoses, which he calls Asinus Aureus, the golden ass. Thus, the alternative title of the work comes to us from the single greatest authority in the Western Christian church. Now, a lot of scholars theorize that Golden Ass was actually the original title of the work, and there's a whole complicated question about this, because the earlier manuscript tradition has Asinus Aureus, and Metamorphoses, of course, is a famous work by Ovid, and it's theorized that maybe someone took the Ovidian um, title and applied it to Apuleius' work, because there are similar themes of transformation in both works. Anyway doesn't matter too much. Now, Apuleius is often called Lucius Apuleius in the manuscript tradition, but it's been speculated that the name Lucius was given to him on the assumption, haha, that the metamorphoses are in some measure autobiographical, so that the hapless Lucius of the novel refers to Apuleius himself. We'll come back to this theory because it has some fascinating possible ramifications, but it's safe to say we don't actually know any names for this guy except for Apuleius. Now, we have an interesting array of works from his pen which survive, all in Latin with the occasional Greek tag. There is the sophistical flowery composition entitled Florida that we mentioned a minute ago, which has nothing whatever to do with the state of Florida in the United States. It's a collection of sophistic writings. There is an essay on the god of Socrates, a theme which we've also seen Plutarch writing on, which some scholars want to say isn't really by Apuleius. But anyway, it is an interesting Middle Platonist theory of daimones and what they do, and we'll talk about it in the next episode. We also have a Latin version of the Aristotelian on interpretation, which went on to be pillaged without acknowledgement by Martianus Capella, whom we'll be meeting in a few centuries' time in the podcast. And translation of the pseudo-Aristotelian on the world, de mundo in Latin, which may or may not have come from Apuleius's pen. So it's possibly by him, possibly not. But it's a very important source because it brings on the world into Latin, whence it entered into the Western Middle Ages. We then have the apologia, the apology, in the old sense of the word, a defense speech. In this piece, Apuleius defends himself from the charge of having used sorcery to get a wealthy matron to fall in love with him so he could get her money. There's a lot in this piece to interest us, but that's also for the next episode. Along with a few other works, there are two that especially interest us. One is The Metamorphoses, an occult novel which is presently going to blow the mind of any of our listeners who haven't read it yet. And of course, an important hermetic work, The Asclepius, which is not by Apuleius at all, but somehow found its way into the manuscript tradition of Apuleius. So, we shall of course return to the Asclepius in the course of our discussions of the Hermetic writings, but the fact that later copyists or editors or whoever thought that the Asclepius, a work detailing ancient Egyptian telestic magic or the ritual art of animating statues, 
the fact that they thought this should be attributed to Apuleius tells us something about the kind of reputation he acquired. There are also a Herbarius and a Physiognomia, manuals on the occult virtues of plants and occult physiognomy, respectively, which travel under Apuleius's name, probably from the 3rd or 4th centuries. So, again, interesting reputation. So let's look at his work and see if we can figure out why he acquired such a reputation. And there's no better starting point than the Metamorphoses for this quest. Now, the Metamorphoses is not only our only remaining Latin novel, which survives in its entirety, it is an absolute masterpiece. By turns hilarious, erotic as hell, horrific, philosophically charged, and always thematically rich, full of um, themes which echo and reappear in different forms, just as the characters magically change their form in various episodes, it is a damn fine read. The basic frame narrative, that of a young man who is magically transformed into an ass and has lots of wacky adventures as he tries to get transformed back into a human, this is actually taken by Apuleius from a lost Metamorphoses written by one Lucius of Patras, which was a Greek novel, and the source of both Apuleius's Metamorphoses and another book called The Onos, The Ass, which is a surviving Greek novel that used to be attributed to Lucian, an author we shall be dealing with in the podcast, but is now considered pseudo-Lucianic. You can read a translation of The Onos in Reardon 1989, which you'll find in the bibliography to this podcast. As for Apuleius's Metamorphoses, I cannot recommend highly enough the translation of Thomas Taylor, the English Platonist, which is itself a minor masterpiece and which we shall be quoting at some length in this episode. There are many translations out there. Now, there's some serious questions about this novel. It was written by a man who, while he is a consummate sophist, with all the kind of wry humor, tongue-in-cheek, double-dealing, and knowing self-referentiality that we associate with the second sophistic, is also a pretty serious Platonist philosopher. So the question has arisen in scholarship, how serious is the golden ass? Book 11 of the novel makes this question especially urgent. There's also the question of how much of it might be read as autobiographical, or as sort of alluding to elements of Apuleius' life in a transformed state. This once again centers on Book 11, and no one thinks Apuleius really turned into an ass, but that being said, there is an awful lot in the novel which might be reflections on lessons learned during a long and checkered career wandering around the Roman Empire being a sophist. There's the fact that the novel possibly, no probably, gives us our best literary evidence for what went on in the initiation into the mysteries of Isis, making it essential evidence for historians of religion. But then the constant comedic bathos of the novel would seem to some scholars to militate against taking any of it seriously. But how serious does serious religion actually need to be? Well, enough questions. We'll come back to that. For now, let's read. The novel is a stories-within-stories affair, sometimes with multiple nested stories, as in the Arabian Nights. There are often tales told within the larger frame narrative which echo or foreshadow the action in the main narrative. Here's the opening. In the following Milesian narration, I will insert various fables and charm your benevolent ears with an elegant and pleasing murmur, if you will not disdain to look into this Egyptian papyrus, written with the delightful subtlety of a nilotic reed, and containing an admirable account 
of men changed into different forms, and by certain vicissitudes again restored to themselves. But who am I, I shall briefly thus unfold. So, the Milesians were a people of Ionia, known for being fun-loving. So, the kind of story we are to expect is one with lots of what's called variatio in um, Latin literary theory. Lots of different delightful episodes, changes of tone, surprising turns and twists, this sort of thing. The reference to papyrus is literal. Books in Apuleius' time were papyrus scrolls. Our first-person narrative is, we learn, a young, carefree, well-born man. We find out later that his name is Lucius, and he's on the road at the beginning of the novel, eager for new experiences. Thessaliam nam et illic originis materna nostrae fundamenta a Plutarcho illo, inclito a mox sexto philosopho nepote eos prodita gloriam nobis faciunt. Eam Thessaliam ex negotio petebam. So our narrator is related to Plutarch and Sextus, and traveling to Thessaly on business. He's traveling in Thessaly, a region of Greece famous for witches. And with the twice-repeated word Thessaliam, our narrator introduces a major theme of the book, terrifying women who work magical transformations. So, he falls in with two men on the road, and one of them narrates the horrible run-in he's had with one such witch. This story serves as a kind of appetizer for the whole book, and I'll just say here that it would be impossible to go into even the choicest tales from the Metamorphoses in a single podcast episode, because we'd run into two or three hours. So we'll just tantalize you with a few choice nuggets here and there, but mostly we're going to kind of give the outline of the work. So Lucius arrives after this uh, wandering with the two men at the house of one Milo in a place called Hypata in Thessaly. He has letters of introduction and is going to stay with Milo and get on with his business. Milo is a comical spendthrift, and his wife Pamphile, we shall learn later, is a mighty witch. A third character in Milo's house is Fotis, the Ankila, or house slave of Milo's wife. Lucius and Fotis have a mutual attraction, and in book two, they get together in a lovely sex scene, which I think is the locus classicus for what we classicists know as the reverse cowgirl position. This scene is followed by the tale of the corpse watcher, another blood-curdling story of witchcraft. And at the end of book two, Lucius is returning to Milo's house late at night, rather inebriated, when he sees three stout robbers attempting to force the gates. He draws his sword, bravely dispatches them, and then being quite drunk, toddles off to bed. Imagine his surprise then when in the morning, at the beginning of book three, he's dragged off to court and put on trial for murder. But after some time, it becomes clear that something weird is going on. Everyone present at the court is killing themselves, trying not to laugh. Finally, they can't take it anymore, and they all burst out in universal hilarity. So what's so funny? Lucius thinks he's about to be uh, killed because he's murdered three guys, but everyone's cracking up. Well, Lucius has not slain three robbers at all, it turns out, but three inflated goatskins. What the heck is going on? Well, it's very complicated and involves the yearly festival of the god Laughter, which they celebrate in this city. You can sign me up to that cult. And the fact that Pamphile, the witch with whom Lucius is staying, Pamphile had told Fotis to get her the hairs of a delectable young man. 
And then she would then use her magical arts to summon him to her house for some hanky-panky. But Fotis had substituted hairs from these goatskins. So the goatskins had magically animated and gone to Milo's house, where they were trying to get in at the front door. Then the drunken Lucius attacked them, and the whole scenario is bizarre, kind of hilarious, and kind of horrific at the same time. In terms of plot, it lets us know that Pamphile is a powerful witch, and Lucius begs Fotis to allow him to witness her in one of her magical transformations. So Lucius's ill-starred curiosity for all things magical is another major theme of this book, and it gets him into trouble. Fotis is reluctant, but she feels so bad that the whole town had mocked her lover and he'd been through such a horrible day through the um, Festival of the God Laughter, such that he thought he was going to be executed forthwith, and then instead found everyone laughing at him, that she relents and promises secretly to show him Pamphile's transformation. A few nights later, they watch through a chink in the door as the witch rubs a special salve all over her whole body transforms into an owl and flies out on a sinister errand. Can Lucius leave well enough alone? Don't you believe it, gentle listener. He insists that he tries it too. Fotis says, don't do it. It's a bad idea, blah, blah, blah. But he insists, so she reluctantly opens her mistress's box of magical goodies and takes out the box of salve. And Lucius eagerly rubs it all over himself. He wants to check out life as a bird. And Fotis has promised him that she can turn him back to a human as soon as he returns from flying around, as she regularly performs this service for her mistress. However, he took the wrong box. And, quote, No plumes, however, nor any wings germinated, but my hairs became evidently thickened into bristles, my tender skin was hardened into a hide, and the extremities of my hands, all my fingers, having lost their number, coalesced into several hoofs, and a long tail proceeded from the extremity of my spine. My face was now enormous, my mouth was long, and my lips immoderate and pendant. Thus also my ears increased excessively, and were clothed with rough hairs. Destitute of all hope, I consider the whole my body. I see that I am not a bird, but an ass. Now this is bad, but Fotis assures him, don't worry, you can be transformed back into a human by the simple expedient of eating a rose. Simple, right? However, at that moment, robbers break into the house, steal everything, take Lucius captive, and load the loot onto his back. Book four is a series of adventures in rose-seeking. He gets taken to the robber's cave, and there are various stories of highway robbery and other fell behavior, overheard by the ass who understands everything with his human mind. Near the end of book four, the bandits bring in a young maiden whom they plan to ransom back to her parents. She's freaking out, and so the vile old crone who cooks for the robbers in their cave lair begins to tell the girl a story just to kind of calm her down and get her to stop freaking out. But with the kind of weird incongruity in which Apuleius, and the second sophistic more generally, specializes, this horrible old slattern embarks on a long, beautifully composed cross between a fairy tale and an elaborate middle platonist allegory of the soul's journey in the material world or at least that's one popular reading this is the tale of cupid and psyche which occupies the next few books of the metamorphoses so the tone of this piece is very different from the rest of the book and there's nothing like it in the onos the the sort of comedic novel that we know this was based on 
but it's an old story full of traditional fairy tale themes and plot devices. So it's not something that Apuleius has just made up. It is really haunting and had a huge reception in later esoteric thought. So good is it, in fact, that we're devoting a special episode just to Cubidon Psyche. So check that out if you like fairy tales or esoteric Middle Platonist allegory, and who doesn't? Now, on with the tale of Lucius. After this long central set piece, Lucius remarks with wry, second sophistical self-referentiality that it was a great story and he wished he could have written it down, but he couldn't because he was an ass. So he escapes from the robbers with the maiden on his back, and she's like, we're free, noble ass, you've saved me. But they're caught again by the robbers on the road, and the robbers are going to kill them both quite gruesomely. In book seven, however, a new robber shows up at the Den of Thieves, but it's really the fiancé of the maiden in disguise on a rescue mission. He gets the brigands drunk, kills them all, and escapes with their loot in triumph. Victory! And the maiden, now triumphantly returned to her young lover, is not forgetful that Lucius had attempted to rescue her, and insists that he be put out to pasture on the richest grasses in fields full of gorgeous mares upon whom he can sire numerous mules for the rest of his days. Basically, she says, it's ass paradise for you, buddy, because you tried to save me and you're a noble beast. It's looking good for our hero. However, the shepherds to whom he is entrusted by the young lady and her new husband are, it turns out, slothful, deceitful scumbags and proceed to abuse the ass in amusing ways, including an imminent threat of castration, which keeps coming back to um, humorous effect. Then... In book eight, a rogue called Thrasyllus, no relation, enters the house of the newlyweds. He's a sort of friend of the young husband, and he manages to kill the heroic young husband in a fake hunting accident because he desires the lady. But the husband's ghost appears to his young bride in a dream and tells her what happened. She gets her revenge, blinding Thrasyllus, and then commits suicide on the grave of her young love. So this horrible subplot leads the slaves of the household, including the people who are supposed to be pasturing Lucius in all honor, but are instead planning to cut his balls off, to flee, since they're worried about what new masters they'll end up getting when the dust settles. So this group of escaped slaves, taking Lucius with them, wander through the countryside and get involved in all kinds of dangers, wolves, hostile villagers, a dragon who eats one of them, and so forth. Lucius is then bought by Philebus, a devotee of the Syrian goddess Atargatis, who's just called Dea Syria in the text, the Syrian goddess, which was a normal Roman name for her. So through the rest of book eight and the beginning of nine, Lucius travels with this roving band of Atargatis worshippers. These folk are interesting as their itinerant priests, maybe something like Roman Hari Krishnas, wandering the countryside, playing music, giving out fake oracles and begging. Apuleius depicts them as basically another form of robbers, but instead of attacking people, they trick them out of their cash through false religion. And they are depicted as being completely identical with the so-called Gali, the priests of Kibele, the Magna Mater. And indeed, there's evidence that in, in the Roman version of the Magna Mater Atargatis cults, there was a lot of um, overlap. They were doing much the same thing. So itinerant priests, which is quite unusual in the traditional Roman way of doing things, and people who self-castrated. So castration was one of their things. So 
Apuleius's depiction of these people is just their horrible, superstitious hypocrites who are all pious during the day, but then at night they take all the money they've earned and have lavish feasts. So in this section of the work, we get some solid religious satire, as well as various adventures, including a rabies scare in which they think Lucius has gone mad and they're going to kill him. Another theme of the Metamorphoses, which we should really emphasize, is this idea of right and wrong religion. We'll talk about this more in the next episode, but we should say here that Apuleius is convinced that there is such a thing as right religion. Indeed, the initiatory cults of Isis and Osiris depicted in Book 11 are explicitly called such, while various cults which the author disapproves of are castigated and mocked throughout the book. When we adduce what we've seen in Plutarch and Philostratus, we can see how Middle Platonist thought, read broadly, as Philostratus was a straight sophist, not a Platonist per se, but his thinking is full of religio-philosophic doctrines drawing on Platonism. When we see how these people were engaged, not in rejecting traditional cult, far from it, but rather in weeding out philosophically unacceptable religion and taking the good stuff as a legitimate source of philosophic wisdom, we can adduce Apuleius to this same movement, the absorption of traditional religion selectively for philosophy. And in Book 9, we get another example of bad religion, which is most instructive as to the polemics going on in the second century in the Roman Empire. Lucius is sold by the devotees of the Syrian goddess to a baker who puts him to work grinding corn. So far, so good. But the baker's wife is a horrible, adulterous bitch. She is described as Skywa Saiwa Wiwiosa Ebriosa Perwicax Pertinax. Um, basically, vile, drunk, scummy, mm, pertinacious. She treats Lucius very badly and is ghastly in every way. Now, to top off the horrible character traits of this woman is her religious persuasion. Quote, Then, despising and trampling on the divine powers, instead of the true religion, counterfeiting a nefarious opinion of God, whom she asserted to be the only deity, devising also vain observances and deceiving me and likewise her miserable husband, she enslaved her body to morning drafts of pure wine and continual adultery. End of quote. This charming lady would seem to be a member of that detestable new cult so hated by Platonists, the Christians. Here we see part of what people found so offensive about Christianity. This woman falsely asserts that her God is the only God, now, this isn't an argument against monotheism on the part of Apuleius. In fact, Lucius will deliver some highly monotheistic sentiments at the end of Book 11, if by monotheism we mean the assertion that all reality ultimately stems from a single highest divine principle. This is in fact the standard Platonist position, and Platonists were all monotheists in this sense. It's what Apuleius sees as the arrogant and false claim to unique and exclusive access to the true God, and the accompanying claim that the other gods, what Apuleius would see as other names for the same supreme God, or um, subsidiary powers of that God, are false. Now, it may be that Apuleius doesn't discriminate between Christians and Jews. This is quite possible. A lot of outside observers in this period didn't, but I would lean toward a Christian here, since the references to counterfeiting and deception would seem to bring with them a whiff of something made up or contrived and kind of new, 
which as we'll see when we look at anti-Christian polemic of Celsus, a Middle Platonist polemical work written sometime around Apuleius' death in the 170s, was a major weak point for Christianity in the eyes of non-Christians. Say what you will about the Jews, goes the argument, at least they have an ancient religion and they're true to their ancestral faith. These Christians have just made up a new religion. So a lot of non-Christians um, saw them as sort of turncoat Jews. In the context of what we know about the respect for antiquity and ancient wisdom in Greco-Roman society, it's easy to see why this would be so objectionable. Now, scholars read the nuances of this polemic in the Metamorphoses in different ways, but the basics are clear. Bad, hypocritical religion is being attacked, and the woman in question seems to be a Christian, or perhaps a Jew, a non-Christian Jew. So, moving on with our narration. This evil woman is caught by her husband in adultery, and to punish her, he buggers her lover and sends her away. However, she wants revenge, so she finds a witch and hires her either to return her husband's affections to her or, failing that, if that's impossible, to raise some evil spirit to kill her husband. In the event, it is Plan B which plays out. In an episode which Memorias listeners will recall from episode 6 of the podcast on Greco-Roman magic, a malevolent, horrid-looking old crone comes to the mill and takes the baker into his private apartment as though she has something to tell him. When he doesn't appear for some time, they have to break down the door, and they find the baker hanged with no sign of the old woman. His ghost will later appear to his daughter in a dream, telling how it all happened, but there are questions left over. Is the evil spirit sent in woman's form somehow like a solid entity? like you or me? And does she actually string the baker up herself? Or does she somehow drive him mad and make him hang himself or something like that? The whole episode is crazy, gruesome, proper horror movie stuff. And we never really find out these kind of details that we would love to know. So the upshot for the narrative is that Lucius is sold once again in the auction of the dead baker's goods to a poor gardener. A bunch of other adventures ensue, including Lucius's brief celebrity status as the ass who eats and drinks like a man. Another sex scene, this time where a human woman falls in love with him in his ass form and proves herself up to the physical challenge of the proverbially enormous ahem, article native to that animal. And many other events occur. It's all great stuff, but we are going to skip ahead for the sake of time to Lucius's final escape at the end of Book 10, this time to the seaside, where he falls asleep on the shore in exhaustion. He awakens at the beginning of Book 11, and suddenly the tone of the novel has changed radically. It's still nighttime when he wakes up. He walks to the sea and washes himself seven times, the sacred seven of the Pythagoreans, we are told, and then he prays to the moon, but the prayer he addresses names a number of goddesses. The moon here is the focus of a whole pantheon of female deities, whom Lucius, now suddenly exhibiting a Middle Platonist syncretic approach to religious cult, is worshipping and asking for help. One goddess, many names. He goes to sleep again and has a dream vision of the goddess who appears before him in physical form, an epiphany. She identifies herself again by a number of names, she, quote, whose one divinity the whole orb of the earth venerates under a manifold form, 
by different rites and a variety of appellations. End of quote. But her supreme identity is that of Isis. She tells him to go to her yearly festival the next day, and there he will find the roses he needs to transform back into his true form. Indeed, she mentions that his present form of an ass is particularly detestable to her. This is doubtless a reference to the Isis and Osiris cult, and the myth in which Set has the form of an ass. This is his theriomorphic form. Lucius's life, however, will thenceforth belong to the goddess. He must become an Isis uh, devotee. His service of the goddess will continue in the afterlife, and if he keeps up the commands of her cult, which include inviolable chastity, which might seem to be problematic based on the contents of the book so far, but it becomes clear in Book 11, I think, that his immoderate sexual appetites are another thing along with his curiosity for magic that have got Lucius into trouble. And as a middle Platonist, Apuleius is very much takes a kind of moderation in all things, including sex, approach to sex. If he keeps this uh, vow of chastity and the other ritual commandments of the cult, Isis can even extend his lifespan beyond what was allocated by fate. A strong claim indeed. The vision ends, Lucius awakes with new purpose, and he wends his way to the ceremony of the Nawigium Isidis, the boat of Isis, which is a yearly festival of the goddess held right across the Roman Empire. There is a crazy parade with all manner of fancy dress, uh, cross-dressing, music, priests looking all Egyptian with their linen clothes and shaved heads, a big model ship which is being carried to the sea, and so on. It's all very carnival-esque, and it has been argued, incidentally, that the custom of carnival, and even the term carnival, is descended from this very festival, which continued at least into the 5th century in, at Rome, so well into the Christian period. Um, the carnival would come from carros nawalis, like a parade float with a, a ship on it. You can take or leave the etymology, but either way, the scene Apuleius describes sounds like a lot of fun. So Lucius manages to push his way through the throng of Isis worshippers to where the chief priest is carrying a ceremonial sort of object garlanded with roses, and he manages to eat one. He straightway undergoes his transformation in reverse and becomes a man again, in full view of the thronging Isis worshippers. And they see this as a miracle of the goddess, and one of the priests hastens to give Lucius half of his clothing, since he's naked now. And the whole scene basically takes him under its wing. Like the, the Isis worshippers are like, wow, he's turned into a human. Fantastic. Isn't the goddess amazing? And he's just taken up by this scene and they do the whole ceremony and he loves it. Throughout this description of the festival of Isis, we see lots of religious details, details of cult held in the highest reverence by our author. And held to be aspects of the true religion, which we can contrast with the priests of Atargates and the detestable Christian woman from earlier in the book. We're also, I think, meant to draw a strong con contrast between bad magic, as depicted by all the witches and whatnot, and what we might call good magic, or any, anyway, divine transformative power by which Lucius is returned to human form. We even have a beautiful example of what has been called Platonist philosophic silence. One of the priests in the procession is carrying a chest, a kista, quote, containing arcana and perfectly concealing the mystic symbols of a magnificent religion. 
and another bore in his happy bosom the venerable effigies of the supreme divinity, which was not similar to any cattle or bird or wild beast, nor even to man, but was an ineffable indication of a more sublime religion, and which was concealed in the greatest silence. So, that which must be hidden, the arcana of the mysteries of Isis, reveal that which cannot be spoken, the ineffable nature of the first Platonist god, who doesn't have a human form, doesn't have any form, is beyond forms, the unnameable supreme power above the divine noose. So we shall return to these metaphysical religious matters in the following episode, but listeners who read Book 11, and particularly the description of the sort of Mardi Gras parade of Isis worshippers, will find all manner of um, very interesting Platonist metaphysical ideas read into Romano-Egyptian religious cults. So we're definitely in the same kind of intellectual territory as we were in Plutarch's On Isis and Osiris. Now we need to get on. Lucius, being now a human again, and taking up work as a legal orator again, has more dream visions, and finally is sort of selected by the goddess for initiation into her mysteries. And there follows, after quite a bit of build-up, our single best description of the initiation which survives from antiquity. Of course, Apuleius leaves a lot out, but he gives us this. Quote, I would tell you if it could be lawfully told. You should know it if it was lawful for you to hear it. But both the ears and the tongue are guilty of rash curiosity. Nevertheless, I will not keep you in suspense with religious desire, nor torment you with long-continued anxiety. Hear, therefore, but believe what is true. I approached to the confines of death, and having trod on the threshold of Proserpina, I retired from it, being carried through all the elements. At midnight, I saw the sun shining with a splendid light, and I manifestly drew near to the gods beneath and the gods above, and proximately adored them. End of quote. So, listeners who are interested in the ancient mysteries or who have been following the podcast um, religiously, as it were, haha, will recognize many of the themes here. The, the death, which leads to a rebirth, the sun shining at midnight, the journey to the underworld, the epiphany or um, being in the actual presence of the gods nearby them. All of this stuff is um, tropologically standard in accounts of the ancient mysteries, or some of them anyway. Note as well the reference to rash curiosity, which is uh, something that Lucius has paid heavily for in this narrative so far. Now, this passage is pretty famous, but um, it's less well known that Lucius then pursues two more initiations before the end of the book, over a, a period of time. It doesn't He doesn't let you know how long it's going on, but Apuleius indicates that he's sort of become a lawyer now, and he's moved back to Rome and stuff. So he's gone to Rome, and Osiris contacts Lucius in a dream to let him know what's up. He says, you need to be initiated into my mysteries. But Lucius can't afford this second initiation. So he sells the shirt off his back, literally, to assemble the necessary funds. 
Then once he's initiated it to the Mysteries of Osiris, fortune begins to favor him and his legal speech ventures in the forum prosper so that his outward success mirrors his inward blessedness. Finally, we're told, the gods command him to undergo a third initiation, and this he does. His affairs will now prosper, Osiris tells him in an epiphany, quote, and that I should now indubitably plead causes in the forum with renown, and that I should not fear the slanders of the malevolent, which the learning I had acquired by laborious study would there excite. In other words, Osiris tells him, go on and be a great lawyer, and as for the slanders, see the following episode, because it will become clear that the trial for magic, which really happened, is most likely what Apuleius is referring to here, which I think is good enough grounds for dating the novel after the trial, although no one can really nail down a date for the metamorphoses, nor agree that any of this stuff is autobiographical. So my take on this is that he's making a little side reference to the fact that he was tried by morons because they were jealous of his great learning, and that is certainly borne out by the content of Apologia, as we shall see, but whether any of this can be taken as autobiographical is open to a great deal of discussion. So this brings us to the end of the book. We've had a third initiation. The tone has been taken at this stage to a very high register. And Apuleius does not tell us which god, goddess, or what is concerned with this third initiation. Although Lucius does shave his head and do the vegetarian diet thing beforehand, which would indicate something along the lines of the Isis-Osiris cults. I think, however, and this is just me talking here, that he intentionally leaves the divine placeholder here empty. He doesn't say Osiris, he doesn't say Isis. Evoking the unnamed supreme deity of the Platonists who has been hinted at already in the book, whom he is indeed assimilating to the good religion of the Romanized Egyptian cult, but who is properly not to be called by any name at all, or otherwise is to be called by all divine names. So this is one theory anyway, and we shall certainly be returning to this theme in the following episode. I think this is indeed pointing us in the direction of the god of the philosophers, who isn't really to be associated with any kind of theriomorphic or anthropomorphic deity at all, but as a, a being or non-being far beyond all such qualities. Now, we've gone on for some time in this episode through the sheer fact that the metamorphoses is so amazing and has so much of interest to students of western esotericism that basically my instinct is just to read the whole thing from start to finish <laughs> however that genial task is in your hands gentle listeners our final task here however is to address the scholarly question asked again and again by baffled readers of the metamorphoses is apuleius serious now first of all here at the schwepp we don't hold to the idea that religion has to be serious all the time to be religion, nor does the culture of the second sophistic support such a position. Look at Philostratus's elegant and witty and sometimes funny depiction of Apollonius of Tiana. Are we to assume that Philostratus doesn't actually really rate Apollonius as a great religious figure just because he sometimes depicts him in witty set pieces or you know blatantly makes stuff up about him or otherwise kind of does the second sophistic thing? Or take Plutarch. He plays with myth, as we've seen, in a creative way, but I think most readers would take his myths as serious religio-philosophic teachings. He really wants to tell you something about the post-mortem fate of the soul, for example. Now, in a post-Christian world, where the idea of 
religio or religion has been shaped very much by Christianity, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that religio has to be po-faced to be real, sincere religion. But this is just nonsense. Late antiquity will indeed see a huge anti-sense of humor turn in religious and philosophic thought, but that's not yet relevant in the second century. Proof of this basic thesis can be found in Apuleius's own text, I feel. So scholars of the is he serious question have typically divided the work into sort of two types of material. The book as a whole, which claimed at its beginning to be a Milesian tale, something which aims at the classical literary effect of variatio, a succession of delightful and various tableaux, alongside the serious material, the tale of Cupid and Psyche and Book 11. So those are our two types of material. The book as a whole based on the onos, and then Cupid and Psyche and Book 11 as a kind of other sort of writing. On one reading, that of Walsh, for example, Apuleius first wrote a version of the text, which was basically a Latin version of the onos, and then later, for some reason, and different reasons are hypothesized here, including anti-Christian polemical concerns, he then added in the more serious stuff. Some readings, like that of Heine, consider that even the serious stuff can be part of a picaresque novel, and that the serious bits are just more variatio. So you can read this as all being perfectly at home in this kind of novelistic form of antiquity. It would have bits of high-flown religious uh, feeling and also bits of silly fart jokes. Another reading sees the events of Book 11 as a kind of interpretive key for the whole work, read as a Bildungsroman, Lucius's lust for the slave girl Fotis and inappropriate curiosity about magic have bestialized him, and true religion in the form of middle platonizing Isis cult transforms him into a true human being. On readings like this, the whole book can be seen as the serious stuff. We could even go so far as Merkelbach, a scholar whose controversial thesis was that the Metamorphoses and nearly all other ancient novels were initiation allegories through and through. But let's look at the serious stuff for a second. The depiction of the cross-dressing carnival of the Isis festival isn't a particularly heavy scene full of gravitas, but it lies at the heart of Book 11, allegedly the serious bit. The tale of Cupid and Psyche is written on a high register with very little comedic bathos, but then it contains the fairy tale trope of the three sisters, the young one is virtuous and pure, and the two elder ones are evil hoydens. In the depiction of the two elder sisters, we do get some pretty colorful, not too serious language, although they can of course be easily allegorized as the vices to which the soul, psyche, is prone and which need to be overcome or something like that. So you can easily allegorize them, but that doesn't change the fact that they're depicted in kind of a comedic style. Still, Cupid and Psyche isn't that serious. It's kind of lighthearted in the way it's told, and we have to be mindful of the playful way in which it's framed in the novel. A tale told to a captive maiden by her jailer, an old dissipated hag who cooks and cleans for a bunch of highwaymen. How did this woman suddenly become so skilled in the arts of middle Platonist allegorical esotericism? So on my reading, the whole serious-not-serious -serious divide dissolves upon inspection, and it's just a blind alley. It's a dumb path to go down in trying to interpret this work. Religion can be funny, 
and still be religion. And that I would maintain is what we are seeing in the metamorphoses on a number of levels. This is even true in the Abrahamic faiths, not the first stop for people normally looking for humor in religion, right? But just because someone farts in the mosque, that doesn't make it less of a Friday prayer. The priest might drop the communion wafer by accident and everyone kind of snickers, but that doesn't make them bad Catholics. Okay, maybe they feel a bit guilty, but the Catholic faith soldiers on. So how much more so must this be the case in a worldview where, as in book three of the Metamorphoses, there is literally a god called Laughter, whose festival involves the whole city playing an elaborate practical joke on someone. We'll have to leave it there, as this is turning into an inordinately long episode of the Schwepp. We hope you've enjoyed this dip into Western esotericism's earliest surviving occult novel. And check out our special episode on The Tale of Cupid and Psyche, where we'll do more narrative explorations, as well as diving deeper into the esoteric hermeneutical possibilities of Apuleius' text. So, if he is writing an allegory, if he's writing a, a story with an esoteric Middle Platonist subtext, what ways do we have to access that subtext as modern scholars? And in our next main episode, we shall further explore some of the same territory, magic, philosophy, religion, and esotericism, as we look at Apuleius' philosophical works and his Apology, the single greatest theoretical treatise on philosophic magic until Iamblichus, and unlike Iamblichus, one which has a sense of humor. Until then, be like the arcana of the Isis cult, quo rectius ad arcana purissimae religione sequita per vaderte, and stay esoteric.